Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm back from vacation. I'm sure you can tell because I'm very tan after <laughs> sitting out in the sun. really paid off in the long run. So anyways, it's great to be back with you all. Uh, and I would like to say I'm refreshed, but I had to take care of my kids the entire trip, so I'm not. But I'm back here, and uh, it's great to be with you all. So let's continue on. Now, at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them. That's Pilate. Anyone for whom they asked. Now, a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. And then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again, Then what do you wish me to do with the man who you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him! Pilate asked them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. So as Ty told you, we are down to our last two sermons, and next week we have our big final ending to everything, and we're going to be playing Mozart's Requiem. We have two services, one at 9 o'clock for our contemporary service, and then here at 10.30, come in, be part of it, Mozart's Requiem with orchestra and choir. It's going to be a great way to end this whole series that we've been working on all year since last September, so I hope you can be here for part of that. But... Today, we're talking about the last event in Jesus' life before he is crucified, his trial before Pontius Pilate. This is perhaps the most important event in the text that we read from Mark because this event, more than any other, tethers Jesus to history. If you read throughout the Gospels, you see that in fact there is very little evidence outside of the New Testament to support that Jesus ever existed. In fact, some archaeologists say there is almost none. And so it is very important that if Jesus was crucified by the Roman government, that Pontius Pilate would have had to have been the one who signed Jesus' death warrant. So today, what I want to do is I want to take special care to tell you about this man, Pontius Pilate, because he's this interesting character who kind of comes in at the end of the Gospel. We don't know that much about him. And then he disappears. And so, I want to tell you, what was his history? What was he like? Who was he? Because I feel that by understanding him, we're going to understand the man who we worship in the sanctuary every single week a little bit better. So, Pontius Pilate. His family hails from an area south of Rome known as Samnium. Samnium is a group of mountains in the south. Samnium is right there. And it contained a group of people who were known as the Samnites. The Samnites were a very brutal people. They were known for being violent. In fact, 
of all the tribes that existed in Italy, they were the last to be absorbed into the Roman Empire or the Roman, the Roman Republic at that point. Now, what's interesting is for the 200 years prior to their absorption into the Roman Republic, they sided with every single enemy of Rome. Anytime anybody went up against Rome, they were there to say, hey, guess what? We're here to help out. Whatever you need, we're right there next to you. Well, that all came to an end in 82 BC when the Roman emperor, or the Roman dictator technically, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, he sent a group of troops into the Samnium Mountains and he gave them one order. And the order was very clear. We want you to wipe out all of these people. We are tired of them coming up against us. So he gave them the order, you are to ethnically cleanse every single person who lives in those mountains. So you can imagine that the people who actually survived that genocide, that they were among some of the toughest individuals on the planet. And Pontius Pilate's grandfather was one of the people who survived that genocide. Now that word Pilate, the last name, it actually means skilled with a javelin. That's actually the literal translation of the word. And Pilate's father served alongside Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, as you know, he was another enemy of the Roman state. He came up and he declared himself to be emperor. It is because Pilate's father served with Julius Caesar that the Pilates found their way into the knightly class of Roman society. Pontius Pilate, he served his time in the Roman army, but because of his education, he was deemed a better administrator than a soldier. And so as he worked his way up, he eventually became what was known as a Roman prefect. Now, a Roman prefect, their job was to oversee some of the lesser territories that were owned by Rome. That was basically the job that they had. So the Roman Empire, it was comprised of this massive area, and for the areas that they didn't really care that much about, they sent Roman prefects out to take care of them. And their job was really to do three things. One, they had to establish a military presence in that area. Two, they were there to collect imperial taxes. And three, they were there to have some limited judicial functions, such as signing off on death warrants. So Pontius Pilate, he becomes the Roman prefect of an area in Syria, which includes Jerusalem, in 26 AD. That's two years before Jesus would begin his ministry. Now all the other prefects that had come before Pontius Pilate, they were very respectful of Jewish customs and traditions. Pilate was not. The first day that he came into Jerusalem, he comes in on a Roman chariot that's being guided by horses, and he's wearing a white tunic with gold breastplates and a red cape. And behind him are 5,000 Roman soldiers, many of whom are carrying standards bearing the emperor's image. Can you guess what the message he was trying to send to them was? Guess what? No matter whether you like it or not, you are under Roman authority. I think it would be fair to say that Pontius Pilate hated the Jews. With every fiber of his being, he hated them. He felt that his assignment to this remote corner of the Roman Empire was beneath him. And he wasn't shy about letting the Jews know how he felt about them. When he first got there, he liked to antagonize them. And so what he did was, he went to the temple. Now you all know, we've talked a lot about the temple lately. But he goes into the temple, and what does he place inside the temple? 
He places symbols of the Roman gods. Which, if you know anything about Judaism, do the Jews have any images of God in their temple? Not at all. So you can imagine this would make them quite upset, and they felt it was quite heretical. Let me give you another example of something that Pilate did when he first got there. His engineers came to him and they said, hey, the aqueducts which bring water into Jerusalem, those aqueducts, they need to be rebuilt. Well, rather than pay for that out of the imperial taxes, Pontius Pilate, he goes to the temple and he robs the temple treasury. So he just goes in and takes all the money. And what's, where's all that money come from? It comes from people like you who donate. So he comes in, he takes that money, and that's how he pays for it. When the people find out about this, they go and they protest in the streets. And what does Pontius Pilate do? He sends his soldiers to the protesters and he slaughters every single one of them right there in the streets. Pontius Pilate was a brutal man. Just like his father and just like his grandfather. But I don't want you to confuse Pontius Pilate with a mere thug. He was also very politically savvy. He was sent to this area of the world because the Jews had a reputation for revolt. And the Roman emperor said to him, your job is to prevent uprisings. Your job is to prevent these people from getting out of control. And the way he was able to do this was by forming a relationship with the high priest who oversaw the temple. Now the high priest is kind of like the Pope in the Catholic Church. It doesn't get any higher than that. They oversee all the priests. And the person who was high priest at this time, his name was Joseph Caiaphas. Joseph Caiaphas. Now, you might be familiar with that name. He appears actually in our scriptures. And Caiaphas, he comes from one of the wealthiest families in Jerusalem. I've told you before that if you were going to be a priest, you had to be wealthy. And if you wanted to be the high priest, you had to be the upper, upper crust. He served one of the longest tenures as high priest, Caiaphas did, from 18 AD all the way to 36. 18 years. Nobody ever served as long as he did. Most people lasted two or three years at most. And one of the reasons why he lasted so long is because he formed a tight relationship with the Roman prefect who was serving at the time. So, we know Caiaphas because in the gospel what happens? He's the one who oversees Jesus' trial before the Jewish courts. And he is famous for asking Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus replies, I am. Now, very important here. Was it illegal for somebody to claim to be the Messiah? No. You could claim to be the Messiah. In fact, many people did. Many, many people did. But what's illegal about this is his, his answer to them. What's the answer? He says, I am. Now that may not seem like such a big deal because he's just saying, yeah, right? But it's a reference back to Exodus, the book of Exodus where Moses asked for God's name and God, he says, what's your name? What should I call you? And what does God reply to Moses? I am who I am. And so by saying that, he is making a direct connection to God. This is the only time in Mark's Gospel that you will see that glimpse of Jesus' divinity. It is right here. And because he says this, he is then convicted of what is known as blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is when you either insult or take God's name in vain or show God a lack of reverence. And by claiming as a human being, which the Jews believe was impossible, you could not, as a human being, 
claim that kind of direct connection to God, well, that was blasphemous. And blasphemy is punishable by death. But the Jews, they were not allowed to kill anybody. That wasn't what they were allowed to do. So what do they have to do? They have to go seek permission from the Roman government. And this is why Caiaphas is portrayed in the Gospels as seeking permission from Pontius Pilate to have Jesus executed. Now I want to stop right here, take a step back, and I want to tell you that the way that Mark portrays Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and before Pontius Pilate is highly unrealistic. And I want to tell you why it's unrealistic. Because we know from other historical documents about how Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate dealt with trials like these. So let me explain to you how they would do it. So let's take a step back. Why was Pontius Pilate sent there? He was sent there because he was supposed to prevent what? Revolt, right? That was his job. And Caiaphas, he was more than happy to help Pilate do this. But the way that he was going to do it was, he sent these spies out into the city of Jerusalem and all around, and they were listening. They were listening for people who might be starting movements that would revolt. And when they found out about one, they would have the leader executed, usually with no trial. Let me give you an example of one. In 36 AD, Caiaphas found out about a man known as the Samaritan. The Samaritan, that's all we know about him. And what he believed was, is that if he went to the top of this mountain, he would find sacred vessels, that's what he called them, that were owned by Moses. And that if he could get a hold of these vessels, that they would give him the same power that Moses had. Well, Caiaphas finds out about this. He tells Pilate. What does Pilate do? He dispatches a detachment of troops who go, and they find these people, and they don't just kill the leader. They actually kill every single member of his movement right there. They hadn't even begun their hike up the mountain. On the rare occasions when Pilate would actually go through the trouble of having somebody arrested, they would never be put on trial. John the Baptist is a good example. He's arrested, he's sent to the fortress of Machairus, and he's beheaded right there at Machairus. No trial. In fact, Pontius Pilate was so well known for sending people to death without putting them on trial, that there was a formal complaint sent to the Roman emperor by Jews in the upper class, the aristocracy, saying this guy is out of control. He is just crucifying people left and right, and he's not even putting them on trial. And it was when he killed the Samaritan that that was the last draw, and he was actually pulled out of his post and brought back to Rome. And it's also when Caiaphas lost his post as well. So this brings us to Mark's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel, what happens? It seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect between the pilot of history and the pilot we see in the Gospel. Because in the Gospel, what happens? Well, Pilate not only holds a trial for Jesus, but he tries to set Jesus free. And in doing so, what does he say? He says, well, there was a custom at the time of the Passover where Pilate would allow one prisoner to go free. That was the custom. And so there's this guy, Barabbas, who caused an insurrection. And so he says, hey, why don't we let Jesus go, and we're going to use Barabbas, and we're going to crucify him in Jesus' place. But Caiaphas and all the other priests, they're like, no, you can't do that. And what does Pilate even say? He says, why? What evil has this man done? 
until eventually they become too persistent. And what happens? He gives in because the threat of riot is too great. And he says, okay, we'll crucify him. Does that sound anything to you like the pilot I just described? Does it make any sense to you that Pilate, a man who hates the Jews, despises them with every fiber of his being, that he would haggle with Caiaphas over some poor, uneducated Jewish peasant? No, it doesn't make any sense. Does it make any sense to you that Pilate would allow a prisoner to go free who had incited riots? That would be like the President of the United States on July 4th taking one of the terrorists who had been part of the 9-11 plot and saying, it's Independence Day, guess what? You get to go free. That would never happen. Never. It wouldn't happen today, and it wouldn't happen back then. Based on what we know from the pilot of history, we know that if Jesus even had a trial, it is highly unlikely that Pilate probably would have even looked at him, let alone talk to him about his circumstances and his situation. And so what this tells us is what we're reading in Mark's Gospel about this trial, that it is actually mostly fabricated. Now the reason why it is fabricated the way that it is, the reason why he writes it the way that he does, to help you understand this, is because of the audience for whom he's writing. Now follow me on this, because this is the key to understanding why we read what we read. So... Mark is writing his gospel from Rome. We're not entirely sure if that's the case, but most people believe that he was writing in Rome. So show Rome on the map. Will you circle it for me just so people can see it? Okay, that's Rome right there. Now, Rome is about 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem. Can you circle Jerusalem down in the corner? All right? That's a long way away. And Mark didn't have the internet so that he could just like look stuff up and figure stuff out, right? Like it wasn't like that back then. If you're 2,500 miles away, you're 2,500 miles away, and there's not a lot of communication going on. So the people who are going to be in Mark's congregation are going to be very different from Jesus' original movement. Jesus' original movement was to who? The, The Jews, right? That's who he was ministering to. Now, Mark's congregation, if they're in Rome, you're dealing with Gentiles, non-Jews, and most of these people, if not all of them, are going to be Roman citizens. Very important that you note that. They will be Roman citizens. Now, Mark knows that the person who is responsible ultimately, or the people responsible ultimately for Jesus' death, are going to be Romans, right? It's going to be Romans. They are the ones who have to sign the death warrant. So when it comes down to it, you can't get away from that. Rome is responsible for Jesus' death. But by portraying the Jewish leadership as forcing Pilate's hand, because remember, he wants to let him go. He's like, oh no, we can let him go, right? But by portraying him that way, what makes it seem like is that the Jews are more culpable for Jesus' death than the Romans. And of course, if you all are Roman citizens, how's that going to make you feel? Well, a lot better, right? You're going to feel a lot better about the fact that Rome is the one that killed Jesus. Another reason why he writes it this way is because at the time he's writing it. When did he write the gospel? We talked about this. What year did he write the gospel? 70 AD. So, 70 AD, what happens? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In 70 AD, the Roman army goes into Jerusalem and they just flatten the place. They get rid of it entirely. They burn the whole thing to the ground and they kill all the people inside of it. And so once again, we have this problem. Who's responsible? Rome is. They're responsible. 
So by portraying the Jews as being antagonistic towards the Roman authorities who are trying every way they can to just be nice to the Jews, well, what is the implication? They had it coming. You know, they tried, the Roman authorities, they tried the best they could to work with them, but they just wouldn't let it happen. And so once again, you're sitting in the audience, and how does that make you feel? Makes you feel a lot better if you're Rome, right? If you're a Roman. So, this is why he writes it the way that he does. Is there anything wrong with him doing this? He's writing it for a specific audience in a specific place in a specific time. Is there a problem with this? Well, not really. He's just doing it for his audience. What he didn't know, though, is that his gospel would become the blueprint for all the other gospels that came after it. So, when Matthew, Luke, and John, when they write their gospel, they are using Mark's version of events with Pilate's trial to write their own version of events with Pilate's trial. And what you will notice is that with each retelling of the story of Jesus coming before Pontius Pilate, the Jews become more and more responsible for Jesus' death. Let's take a look at Matthew. That's the next one written after Mark. So in Matthew, what happens is Pilate literally washes his hands. He takes water, washes his hands, and he says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And then the Jews, what do they call back? They say, let his blood be on us and on our children. All right, let's go to Luke. Luke is the next one up. So in Luke, we see that he says this. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressing them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So in Luke, three times he tries to set Jesus free. In fact, in Luke, he sends him off to Herod, and Herod sends him back. I mean, they're doing everything they can to let Jesus go, and it's just too much. Their, their voices prevail too much because the riots are going to happen, and so they have to give in. And by the time you get to John, in John's Gospel... No longer is the anti-Jewish sentiment just held in Pilate's story. It's all over the gospel. I mean, the way John writes about Jesus, it's as if he's totally divorced from his Jewish heritage. He might as well not even be Jewish, because he uses this word in his gospel, the oi udeoi, the Jews. He talks about that constantly in his gospel. And the Jews is a derogatory term that refers to anybody who opposes Jesus' message and who contributed to his death. And when you get to the trial before Pilate in John's Gospel, you want to know what happens? He tries to set him free, and the Jews stand up and they say, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Now I'm sorry, but no Jew in their right mind would ever utter a phrase like that. Unfortunately, Christians have used this and all the other statements that you find in the Gospels as a way to promote and support the persecution and genocide of the Jews throughout the centuries. I know that many of you in here, you wonder why I spend so much time talking about the history behind the Bible, and I know that for some of you, it probably hurts your soul to hear me tell you about some of these things. 
And I know that some of you probably even think it's heretical for me to talk about it the way that I do. But I have to tell you, I believe it is unethical not to tell you this information. Because it is because of Mark's story, the story that he wrote about Jesus before Pontius Pilate, that it is the root cause of why a group of German Christians in 1941 committed the greatest genocide in the history of the world. It took almost 1,900 years from the time he wrote that story. But it planted a seed that would influence Hitler and millions of other German Christians to systematically kill 6 million Jews. So, if your thought in your mind is, who are you to stand up there and to talk about the Scriptures this way? Who are you to dismiss it? We've had pastors in here for decades who have just told us the story over and over again. Who are you to just talk about it? Well, I'll tell you why I do it. It's because this story affected lives. This story, the one that we're reading today, it not only influenced the way people think about the Jews, but it influenced people's actions towards the Jews. People died because of this story. Lots of people. And I know that if Mark could have seen what was going to happen down the road, he would have never written it that way. But the fact is, he did. And it did have this impact. And so, no, I do not believe we can let this story stand as it is written. We need to stand up and speak out and say that this story has inaccuracies in it. Particularly the fact that the Jews are not responsible for Jesus' death. That responsibility falls on one man and one man alone, Pontius Pilate. If you want an analogy, a modern analogy for what we're talking about today, about standing up for what is right, all we've got to do is look at that controversy surrounding the Confederate flag that's happening right now. So... The Confederate flag, this is the second version of it. This is the one that most of us are talking about. It looked like this. It was created by a man named William T. Thompson. And I grew up in the South. And I've been thinking back as this whole flag controversy has been going on. I've been thinking back on my education, what I was taught when I was a kid. And as I'm thinking back on it, I remember now that when I was in high school, they were talking about the South seceding from the North. And what they told us was that it had nothing to do with racism, that it had very little to do with slavery, but that it was mostly about states' rights. That's what I was taught. And I believed that for a long time because I figured, hey, you're the teacher. You know better than I do, right? And so as I got older, though, like you, I was able to do a little bit more research. And so with this whole flag controversy, we can look at the man who created this flag. And the man who created this flag, he actually owned a newspaper in Georgia And he wrote a number of editorials about this flag as he was promoting it to be used by the Confederacy. And here's something that he wrote about this flag. As a people, we are fighting to maintain the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. A white flag would thus be emblematic of our cause. Upon a red field would stand forth our southern cross, gemmed with the stars of our confederation, all combined, preserving in beautiful contrast the red, white, and blue. Such a flag would be chaste, beautiful, and significant, while it would be easily made of silk or bunting and would be readily distinguished from the flags of other nations. So we can have a conversation all we want to about whether the South wanted to secede from the North because of states' rights, but when it comes to this flag... It has to do with racism and white supremacy, period. Because that's the guy who created it. You can read it in that book right there, The Flag 
of the United States, and that is taken from his editorial. So we can stand up and we can continue to put forth the narrative that it's all about states' rights, that that's what that flag stands for, or you can stand up and you can say what it's really all about, which is about white supremacy and racism. And the right thing to do is to stand up and say, this is wrong. In the same way, I hope that we will stand up and say what is right about this story, that we will speak out against what this story has done, that we will try to correct the fallacies that we find in the biblical narrative. Because the fact is, this story is the reason why the Holocaust existed in the first place, and we as Christians are the ones responsible for correcting that. And when we stand up and when we say, no, this is not right, we not only stand next to Jesus, but we stand next to our Jewish brothers and sisters. And by the way, there is no Christianity without Judaism, because Jesus was Jewish. I want to thank you for hearing me out on this. This is something that's very close to my heart. I have a lot of Jewish ancestors, many of whom were killed in the Holocaust. And so I appreciate that you would hear me on this, because this is something that is very important for us as Christians to take to heart. Next week, we end our series, and it's going to be a really uplifting way to end. I can't wait for you to be there. I hope you can be. Come for the Requiem. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful day. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.